Well, welcome to all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, along with others of you meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in Bearspaw, and South Calgary. And speaking of South Calgary, we're excited to let you know that um, they are continuing to grow as a campus and are moving to two services this morning. And if you, yes, let's just um, thank the Lord for, for that. And if you live in the deep south of Calgary, I encourage you to pray about being part of that campus. In fact, all of our campuses are growing, which indicates that God is moving in the hearts of people in our city and drawing them to himself. And so let's continue to pray for him to lead us to those uh, in our sphere of influence who need the Jesus that we know and love. So if you're new to our church, we're studying the book of Revelation. Um, and those of you who have taken in all or most of the sermons so far probably noticed that the first five chapters, which uh, we've just covered, uh, aren't nearly as complicated and confusing as you thought they might be. And you're right, of course. In fact, Revelation 2 and 3 in particular are very clear and straightforward. In these chapters, Jesus not only praises and encourages the church of his day um, and also of our day, but he also speaks very frankly and directly to us as Christians about what our primary focus in life should be what our motivation, what our mission, what our passion and our behaviors should be in times like these. And so as we go through the remaining chapters of Revelation, which are a lot harder to understand, I challenge you to always go back to these first few chapters, remembering that Jesus started this book with these chapters for a reason and he's essentially saying when times of trouble and hardship and uncertainty come when the world around you seems to be turned on its head and has lost its moral bearings and its understanding of what is true and what is right and wrong do not be overcome by fear or worry. Do not get distracted and sidetracked and obsessed with trying to figure out what may happen and when it may happen. No, Jesus is saying to us, stay focused on me and pursue a closer walk with me and together with me and others pursue the mission that I've called you to because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb that was slain for your redemption and I am worthy of your total devotion. And so let's keep that in mind as we come now to the more challenging part of the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 6 and on, which many Christians and Christian scholars 
interpret differently. And so to help us prepare for our study of the rest of Revelation, in this sermon, I'm going to pull the camera lens back, as it were, so that we can see the big picture and give an overview of how the two most predominant views approach and interpret Revelation and the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And those two views or approaches are the futurist view and the idealist view. And so let's jump right in and look at how the futurists interpret and approach the book of Revelation. Futurists see Revelation 6, uh, Revelation 4 to the end of the book as a prophetic account of actual future events that involve eight key time periods or events uh, that take place in a linear way. In other words, one right after the other. And the first key period of end time prophecy is Daniel's 70 weeks and the Jewish age. And we read about this in Daniel 9. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 9 right now. Now, to more fully understand this chapter, it's important I give a little background of where the prophecy that Daniel gives here fits into Israel's history in the Old Testament. When King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king, who was not only an evil king, but he also made some major leadership blunders which ultimately tore the nation apart. A civil war erupted and when the dust settled, Israel found itself divided into two territories, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Now sadly, in the years that followed, most of the kings in both of these kingdoms were evil. And consequently, the people increasingly drifted from God and worshipped the created things rather than the creator. The Lord tried to communicate his love for them. <clears throat> he tried to warn them of coming judgment through the numerous prophets that he sent their way. But the Israelites ignored the prophets. They didn't want to hear what they had to say. And so God poured out his judgment by allowing the northern kingdom to be conquered and taken captive by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C., and then 150 years later, allowing the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to be conquered and taken captive by the nation of Babylon in 586 BC. In 2 Chronicles 36, we read that having conquered Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar took many Jewish people, including gifted young men like Daniel, back to Babylon in captivity. But then, 58 years later, Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, king of Persia. And some years later, King Cyrus did something that made absolutely no rational sense. He allowed the Jews, who were not only his enemies, but also his slaves, he allowed them to return 
and to rebuild Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. Now keep that in mind as we now go back to Daniel 9, where as I pointed out just a few moments ago, we find what futurists believe is the first key of the prophetic calendar, Daniel's 70 weeks and the Jewish age. In this chapter, God gives a timeline of the major biblical events for the Jewish nation from the time of Daniel right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now follow along closely as I read Daniel 9, beginning verse 24, in which Daniel describes what he refers to as 70 weeks. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now notice that God says 77s are decreed for your people, which is, of course, referring to Daniel's people, the Israelites, and their holy city, Jerusalem. In other words, God's saying the Jewish age is going to come to an end in 77s. Now, what does that mean? 77s means weeks of years, or 70 weeks times 7 years, or 490 years. Now look at verse 25, where Daniel is given more details. Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem which is referring to the time King Cyrus gave permission to the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, which I just talked about, until, it re we read here, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, which is referring to Jesus, the Messiah's first coming, there will be seven sevens. That's referring to the 49 years it took to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And then it goes on to say, and 62 sevens, which refers to an additional 434 years, or from the time that Jerusalem was rebuilt to the time of Jesus' first coming. Now, Robert Anderson did the math on this. And he discovered that from the time of Cyrus's decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the day that Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives on a donkey and was presented to the nation of Israel as their spiritual king, the day that we refer to now as Palm Sunday, that time period is exactly 483 years or 69 sevens. Absolutely incredible. Now we know that just a few days after Palm Sunday, Jesus was rejected and he was crucified. And Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 9 includes this as well. Look at verse 26. And remember, Daniel wrote this 
hundreds of years before Christ came to our planet. This is what we read. After the 62 sevens, or 483 years, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. This is referring, of course, to Christ's crucifixion and death. And so to summarize, in the timeline that Daniel was given by his Lord, when Jesus was crucified, 69 sevens, or 483 years, had taken place. And only one seven, or seven years, remained before the end of the Jewish age. But here's the thing. The Jewish people couldn't accept the fact that the Messiah was capable of dying. And so when Jesus died, they rejected him. And in doing so, futurists believe the 70th week or the 490-year timeline was interrupted. A gap or an unexplained period of time followed, which is described in verse 26. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, futurists believe that the ruler that's referred to here is the Antichrist. Now, because of the massive amount of destruction that the Antichrist will cause, as depicted in Revelation, futurists believe that this evil ruler hasn't appeared yet 2,000 years later. But when he does come, they believe the end will be near. Because as we just read in verse 27, when the Antichrist comes, he will confirm a covenant with Israel, which is when the final week or the final seven years of the Jewish age will take place, which futurists refer to as the tribulation. Now that took a while to explain, but Daniel's 70 weeks is the first key period of time leading to Jesus' second coming, which covers the entire Jewish age right up to the tribulation, which futurists believe has yet to occur. Now, the second key period is the church age, which finds itself within the Jewish age. According to futurists, we are presently living in the church age, or that gap of time between Christ's crucifixion and the tribulation period, between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus promised that he would build his church. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, and it consists of those who place their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And according to futurists, 
A time is coming when the church age will come to an end through the next key biblical event called the rapture, which is the third key prophetic event. The rapture will catch away the true church or those followers of Jesus Christ who by faith are in right relationship with Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, futurists believe that this passage, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, are referring to the rapture. Futurists believe the rapture could happen at any moment. Suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, millions of Christians will suddenly disappear from this planet. And as we meet Jesus in the air, our bodies will be transformed into bodies made for a heavenly existence. For you've probably noticed, as I have, our bodies aren't exactly made to last forever. Or am I I the only one that's thinking that way? (laughs) Philippians 3.21 says that we're going to receive new bodies like the glorified body that Jesus had after his resurrection. Bodies that won't wear out, that won't get sick or grow old or get tired. No more battle with the bees, the bulges, the bifocals, the baldness and the bunions. That's all done with. However, just before those who are alive at that time are caught up with Christ, the bodies of those who have died in Christ before them will be raised from the grave and will be transformed into incorruptible bodies as well and be reunited with their spirit, which has been with Christ the moment they passed from this life. What does the scripture say? To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so according to the futurist, the rapture will accomplish three purposes. First, it will bring the church age to an end because Christians or the true church will disappear and meet him in the air. Second, the rapture will provide all believers living and departed with their eternal resurrection bodies. And thirdly, it will save Christians from having to go through the next key biblical event, which is the tribulation. Although I must point out that some believe that Christians will go through some or all of the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is the fourth key biblical event leading to Christ's second coming. Daniel's 70th week 
begins in Daniel 9.27 where God resumes the plan for the Jewish nation. With the church having been raptured, the key purpose of the tribulation period is to reconcile the nation of Israel to the Messiah. And during this period, many Jews will give their lives to Christ, but so will many non-Jews. With millions of Christians suddenly gone through the rapture, many people who rejected Christ or ignored him, or who sat on the fence of indecision about Christ, or for that matter, only partially committed themselves to him and never really embraced him as Lord and Savior, they will suddenly realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they will repent and commit their lives to Christ. However, as Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation 6 to 18 indicate, life on earth will be just terrible for those who are still on earth at that time. Many will be imprisoned, tortured, die a martyr's death for Christ, which reminds us why it is so important that we not let pride or the lust for success or the pleasures of life keep us from giving our lives completely to Jesus and to be all in with him. The fifth key prophetic event is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 indicates that while the tribulation is happening on earth, in heaven, the bride of Christ, or the church, will be celebrating our rewards with Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. Following that, the Lord will come back to earth not to get his bride, the church. I mean, that happened at the rapture. But he will return to earth with his bride in what we call his second coming. Revelation 19 verse 21 tells us that Christ will come and destroy those who are in rebellion against him. He will overthrow the Antichrist. He will bind Satan for a thousand years and take control of the earth once again as Lord and King. Which leads to the sixth prophetic event, which is the millennium. For a thousand years, believers will reign with Christ in a theocratic kingdom where all of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants are fulfilled according to Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 6 and Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. With Satan bound during the millennium, universal peace and justice will prevail. The seventh prophetic event could be called the final uprising and judgment. According to Revelation 27 to 9, futurists believe that at the end of Christ's 1,000-year reign, Satan will gather a multitude of unregenerate people to rebel against Christ. They will be defeated, and the devil will join the beast and the false prophet in the lake of burning sulfur. And Revelation 20, 
Verse 11 to 15 tells us that all those who have rejected Christ will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And in that moment, every knee will bow and everyone will finally acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. But it will be too late. At that moment, the politician, the millionaire, the playboy, the popular celebrity, and the ordinary John Doe will find themselves standing before a holy God, stripped of everything but what is in their hearts. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing in whom and in what they really trusted, will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And these people will receive exactly what they wanted in life. A life without God. And what a day of great regret and agony that will be. And then finally, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter 3.10 says that a firestorm will destroy the present planet. And Revelation 21 verses 1 to 5 says that God will create a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no Satan, our adversary. But above all else, we will be with our Lord. And he will share his glory with us for all ages to come. And that, my friends, is an overview of the futurist prophetic timeline. Everybody got that? Everything clear? <laughs> Which brings us to a second way many people interpret the book of Revelation. And it's called the idealist view, and fortunately... It doesn't take nearly as long to explain. Those who have this view interpret Revelation 6 through to 22 symbolically and spiritually. Idealists agree that there may be some general predictions in the book of Revelation, like the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. But they do not believe the book lays out a secret code for the future that must be cracked in order to determine when Jesus will come again. And therefore, the idealists do not have timelines and charts and graphs. Rather than seeing the book of Revelation as a linear chronological sequence of events to do with the future, idealists view Revelation as the ongoing conflict between good and evil. The battle down through history between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. The idealist believes that the book of Revelation does not have to tie in to any particular era of history. And so the application of the book's message is timeless. It applies to all eras of history 
all the way from the time of the apostles until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Idealists do not interpret the book literally the way that futurists do. They believe that in the same way that we interpret parables or interpret poetry in the Bible in a non-literal way, we need to use the same approach in interpreting the apocalyptic visions that John had and wrote down. The focus is on understanding the spiritual and the symbolic significance of the visions that John had rather than attempting to correlate them with a particular historical event. As a result, the idealist does not see most of the prophecies in the book of Revelation as predictive, pointing to historical events or movements or persons like the Antichrist, for example. For the idealist, the message of the visions of Revelation, especially from chapter 6 on, is simple. While God's children suffer in a world where evil appears to have the upper hand, God is sovereign, and Jesus has won the ultimate victory. Therefore, the idealist would tell us, hold on, don't give up, remain faithful. One day you will reign with Christ. For the idealist, this is the primary message of the book of Revelation. To all Christian believers, irrespective of when or where we live. For example, imagine that you're a follower of Christ and someone in your immediate family is diagnosed with cancer. Add to this you are facing challenges at work, largely because you are a Christian and your co-workers are making your life difficult simply because you are a Christian. You look at government policies and legislation and you are discouraged by the influence of the culture and how deviant it has become. You look at churches in your city who have compromised the gospel and have watered down the teachings of the Bible. Does the book of Revelation have anything to say to such a disillusioned believer? Well, the idealist would say, a resounding yes to that question. The book of Revelation speaks volumes to such a struggling believer. Just as the book encouraged the early church in their struggles against the Roman Empire, and just as the book ministered comfort to Christians who went through war and world wars and genocide, and other major crises. So the message of this book edifies a Christian today who is doubting the sovereignty of God and his control over the universe. And so, for example, the idealist interprets the scrolls, the trumpets, and the bowls in Revelation 6 to 11 as reoccurring times of trouble that we've seen down through history and that have clearly been increasing in intensity over time. The idealist sees the four horsemen 
the dragon, and the lamb as symbols representing broader concepts like conquest, evil, and Christ, the lamb's redemptive work. And so that is a high-level overview of how futurists and idealists interpret Revelation 6 through to the end. Now, let me ask you, are the futurists right? Perhaps, but they may also be wrong. Are the idealists right? Perhaps, but they may also be wrong. If you embrace a different view than the futurists and the idealists, and trust me, there are a lot of other views that Christians hold. If you embrace a different view, you may be right. But you also may be wrong. You see, all through church history, people thought that they had figured out the prophetic timeline and when Christ would return. And in every case, they were wrong. For example, around 200 AD, church father Hippolytus calculated that Jesus would return in the year 500 AD. Hal Lindsey strongly suggested that 1988 would be the year of the rapture. Edgar Wisenot, in his booklet, gave 88 reasons why the rapture would be in 1988. Pat Robinson was absolutely convinced the rapture would happen in 1992. Chuck Smith, founding pastor of Calvary Chapel, wrote in his 1978 book, Future Survival, that the Lord is coming for his church before the end of 1981. And later he repented of his mistake and of date setting in general. And church, that is why we must not become obsessed with trying to figure it all out. Because let's be honest, in the area of biblical prophecy, things are not always as clear as some would have us believe. Brian Clark says, one of the convictions I have developed over the years is when something in the Bible is unclear, it is unclear for a reason. And what he's saying is, is that God doesn't have a communication problem. What God wants to make clear he is fully capable of making clear, like, for example, his message to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. So if something is unclear, it is unclear for a reason, even though we may not know the reason. And so I think it's important that we acknowledge that right now. Even if you are absolutely certain that you are right or that your favorite Bible teacher is right. He's got it all figured out. In a moment, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I could be wrong. Or, they could be wrong. Go ahead, just do that now. Now, I hope you find that just a little bit free. Now, of course, there is one truth that all Bible-believing Christians agree on and are certain about, 
And that is that Jesus is coming again. Amen? We don't know when and we don't know how and all those kind of things, but he's coming again. And so given that certain truth, how then should we live until he does come? Well, let me quickly point out three things from Scripture. First, if you don't know Jesus personally, put your trust in him now. Don't put it off any longer. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see eternal life. For God's wrath remains on him. Reach out to Jesus in prayer, my friend. Tell him that you're putting your trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and regrets, to come into your life and to change you and to make you more like him. And if you're serious, I assure you he will come into your life and he will transform you from the inside out. If you would like to talk with someone about this more or have someone pray with you or for you, then after the service, make your way up here or the front of whatever campus you're attending and a pastor or a prayer partner will gladly pray with you and explain how you can become a friend of God. Second, pursue knowing God and becoming like him. Pursue him. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ. It's all about him. To live for Christ means your focus is on him rather than on what makes you anxious and fearful. Be discerning, yes. Be wise, yes. But do not live in fear or in speculation. Rather, pursue knowing God and living for him. And then thirdly, live each day as if it were your last. Love God. Love your family and your spiritual family in Christ. And love those who do not know Christ. I remind you of what Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 5.14. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus wants to reach people who do not know him through you and me. And that means we shouldn't be trying to avoid those people. No, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Spiritually lost people need to see the light of Jesus in you and me. So let's not build a bunker in the backwoods in order to be safe and secure from our troubled world and hide our light. No, let's be the light that Jesus calls us to be.
Church, I remind you, it is by his sacrifice, it is by his gift of grace through faith that we are saved from eternal separation from God. I mean, do we really understand what a gift Jesus has given to us? Do we understand the sacrifice Jesus made? And the price he paid to give us the gift of his grace. The gift of redemption. The gift of eternal life. If we do, we must not keep Jesus and his grace a secret. Or keep it hidden from those who desperately need it. In these last days, we must devote less of our time to accumulating stuff and trophies and seeking people's applause or pursuing a life that is safe, secure, and and, and filled with ease. No. We must prayerfully step out and point people to the Jesus that we know and love. So it's with that in mind, we're going to stop right now and partake of the Lord's Supper, which so powerfully symbolizes His grace and what He did for us. You know, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you get that? When we take communion, we are not only remembering and giving thanks for the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross, but we are also to remember that one day he's returning. And so as we prepare to participate in this time of communion, I encourage you to first look back and give thanks for his saving grace. But then also to look ahead to his coming, which may be at any time, and ask yourself, do I have a healthy sense of urgency concerning the spiritual state of my family, my friends, my neighbors, my co-workers, and other people that God has brought into my life? Ask Ourselves, am I living each day with the healthy awareness that it could be my last? Are the values, the lifestyle, the priorities I'm pursuing today the kind I'd feel unashamed of if Jesus were to return today? We're going to have a moment of silence right now, which I'm going to invite you to not only thank the Lord for his grace, but I want you to take those questions that I just asked to the Lord and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? As I anticipate your coming, what are you saying to me, Lord, and what are you asking me to do about it? Let's take a moment and just do that right now.
Now, if you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're in right relationship with others, I'm going to invite you to join us in taking this holy sacrament. Just right now, take the communion cup and turn it upside down because you will find the wafer at the bottom. So open that up and help yourself to the wafer. The Bible says that Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take eat in remembrance of me. And as you do, thank him. Thank him for his grace and cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. Let's take it together. And take the cover off the cup. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as you do, receive his grace, his forgiveness, his healing and his power by faith and with thanksgiving. Let's take it together. 